Courtney. Awesome. Hey, Dr. Lynn. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Hey, Courtney. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to co-host with you on the Sausage of Science. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Who are we talking to today? We are talking to Kara Ackerbach and Sarah Lacey. I know her. I know her too. We all know Kara I and Sarah. know Kara. Yes. <laughs> do, do you know Sarah yet? I have never met Sarah, no, but oh, I'm really excited to get to know her a little bit more today. She is delightful, as you will find out. Okay, let me find where we put these questions. Co-host Courtney, meet co-host Kara. <laughs> And um, and then and Sarah, who is our BFF. So let's see. So this is going to be a slightly different episode for listeners, as you're already wrapping your brains around. Courtney Manthe Pierce is our fill-in co-host today. Courtney, do you want to tell folks who you are? Yeah. So my name is Courtney Manthe Pierce. I am the new junior service fellow for the Human Biology Association. So I get to be the cool webmaster and meet all these famous people by guest co-hosting the podcast. And I'm just super excited to be here. And we and I am excited to have, have you as part of the team. So thank you. And Kara is also excited to have more help because she doesn't want to co-host every single week all the time for the rest of her life. I but, feel like I'm being thrown under a bus ever so slightly. <laughs> Just ever so slightly. Ever the, so slightly. But the fact that you're not co-hosting, but you're on the show as a guest. It's weird. And Sarah is also a friend of the show, as you probably figured out, has been on the show. I did not look up the number, the episode numbers of Sarah's and Kara's former episodes. So listeners, you will have to go back into our past episodes to get at the origin stories and find out how the sausage of Sarah and Kara independently were made. But what we're going to do today is ask how the Kara Sarah specialty sausage got formulated because <laughs> just the connected the links of the sausage. Out of this metaphor, yeah, the connected links of the sausage. The sausage is very fruitful, and we're just going to like leave that metaphor on the. Okay, no, I'm not, because you guys come from the same grad program, and that's where you. For, first took me to the barbecue place in the jail. With Eric Trinkhouse, who Eric was Trinkhouse, our advisor. Who was your, you, an advisor you both shared. So I'm going to throw that little thing out there and just say, unpack that story and tell us the origin of the Kara, Sarah, Kara, Sarah. I don't know. I haven't got a good like name for the two of you. You're like dynamic duo-ness, but go, go with that. Sarah, do you want to, do you want to start off the story? Sure. Yeah. We went to grad school together. And that's something I like to mention frequently to graduate students is that the friends that you make in graduate school aren't just friends, right? They're potential collaborators and colleagues for the rest of your life. And sometimes I'm giving them that advice because it's like, you know, don't mess up and like make enemies in grad school because you're going to have to see them at conferences when you're 60. But like, this is a group of people that if you share interests with, you can potentially work with them 10 years down the line. And that's kind of Kara and I's story is that we shared a lot of interests. We've stayed friends. And then just a couple of years ago, you know, we were complaining about papers that were kind of missing from the discipline. 
and we did the Neanderthal cold adaptation paper together. And then texting, complaining about sexism in the field turned into conference presentations and now these papers. And I'll add on to this, and it might be a slightly embarrassing story. So we can edit this out, Sarah, if you're okay with it or not okay with it. I'm always fine with it. (laughs) (laughs) So Sarah was actually one of my bridesmaids in my wedding, which I had gotten married right at the end of grad school. And I remember really well her doing my makeup like at my dining room table in the apartment and then her realizing that she had missed some hair from shaving her armpits and me like plucking out the additional hairs. So we've been close armpit hair plucking friends (laughs) since, you know, 2014 and earlier. Ow. Right? Like you gotta know how deep this goes. Plucking armpit hair? Wow. (laughs) I already know the answer to our last question today. Holy crap. That is not my skill. And don't you dare pin that on me. Uh, But there's another part I want to add because I feel like Sarah's being really modest here when it comes to this whole woman, the hunter thing that we've been collaborating on. So I've been working on a book now for a little over a year and the draft is due January, middle of January. And I've been complaining to Sarah just about the process of writing the book and feeling so inadequate to be the person to write about these kinds of things. And she's like, how about we do something, you know, write something or presentations or something together to kind of, you know, dip your toe in the water, get some peer review stuff out. And so Sarah was really the big push of the idea of like, let's do something formal rather than, you know, a more public facing book first. And so that was how the AABA sessions came about. And then now the American Anthropologist papers that came out damn, like a month ago, like almost literally a month ago. Well, I actually had the privilege of attending your Woman the Hunter talk at the American Association of Biological Anthropologists AABA conference in Denver in 2022. And it was so amazing. I'm sure anybody who's listening who was able to attend the talk is like nodding along like, yes, it was so good. And you actually mentioned in the acknowledgments of Woman the Hunter, the archaeological evidence that you received feedback after this talk. So my question is, was there like a specific comment or question that was especially impactful? I think I I went into that talk a little worried that I was beating a dead horse right? It's with the archaeological stuff, because there are so many women who have published on this going back to the 70s. Though, of course, you know, we're bringing new data into it. And so many people came out to us saying, like, thank you, finally, like, this was so necessary. And really, like, reinforced to me that this was really necessary. But we also got, like, I could think of a couple kind of big names in the field who were a little aggressive afterwards, who were, like, not happy with some of the interpretations And I think that only like reinforced to me that it was the right thing to do. Listen to what their critiques are and then address them directly in the paper, not just like sweep it under the rug. So I certainly kept that in mind with revisions and reviewer edits and things like that, making sure that I could speak to that audience as well. And hopefully they're persuaded by our argument. So you got two big review papers, right? So we have for listeners, we didn't say the names of them, Woman the Hunter physiological evidence and women, the hunter, the archaeological evidence, right? So one, you kind of said it, but let's be explicit. What's the purpose of writing these two papers? So it's a two-pronged thing for me. And one, I think, Chris, you'll remember this was kind of 
my transition from UAlbany here to Notre Dame. And I was writing that sapiens piece about my experience lifting and all the absurd comments that were made to me in this powerlifting gym and these assumptions that guys had about women's bodies and what they're capable of in, you know, athletic spaces and things like that. I was always taken aback, although maybe I shouldn't have been, by just how misinformed they are on, on just like the, the basics of exercise physiology, which got me looking into a little bit more about what do we know about female bodies within an exercise physiology realm. And it turns out they're horribly, horribly, horribly underrepresented, both as you know exercise physiology researchers and then research participants. And so often females are just treated like small males. And so training, recovery, nutrition, all of those recommendations are actually based on data collected among males. So that was part one. And then part two came from class. Teaching fundamentals of bioanth here, I do this fun assignment with my students, which is I have my students write online dating profiles for the fossil hominin of their choice. And every time it creates like the best things. I have a giant fake Tinder poster board over here in my office of it. But the first semester I did it, and honestly, it's several subsequent semesters in a row, the vast majority of my students, no matter their gender identity, were writing that profile from the perspective of a male fossil hominin in search of a female. And I was just like, whoa, why is this like this? What is happening? And, you know, through conversations with colleagues and Sarah and others, it's just like, because that's what we've been taught. You know, the the vast majority of the story of human evolution has been written by and about the perspective of men. It's just that this idea that evolution has only been acting on the male of the species and, and females have been kind of dragged along passively benefiting from those evolutionary forces. And it's just absurd. And, you know, this goes, you know, deep into the past with the man, the hunter, both the conference and then eventually the, the edited volume. And we've seen lots of amazing foundational feminist work with an anthropology that has really tackled the man, the hunter perspective, primatological evidence. We've seen that a lot with Sarah Hardy. We have seen the ethnographic evidence um, and some archaeological evidence, but biological argument had not been made to this point as to why we might want to really think about the ways in which evolution could be acting on the female of the species to drive our human evolutionary trajectory. All right. Yeah. I mean, so among chimpanzees, we know that females predominate as tool users and innovators. But what do you think has led paleoanthropologists to imagine flint napping as exclusively male? Is there anything about hand size, manual dexterity, or anything else that might explain the bias? I think that's a good question that, like, as a discipline, we should be asking ourselves, right? Like, wh where is this rooted in? And I think that there's not a very good explanation if you try to argue like dexterity. I mean, maybe male hands are slightly larger than female hands, just as body size, right? But that doesn't make one better at flint napping. There is more of a fixation on hunting tools as like the specialist tools. And because hunting is already fetishized as very masculine in these discourses and those are the tools where people are focusing on and thinking okay well then males are producing these tools and i tried to kind of challenge that in part of the archaeology paper because we look at the ethnographic evidence people tend to make the tools they use so then there's like this dismissing of processing tools 
if only, you know, the female hominids are doing the, the leather processing and the cooking, and then that somehow that's not flint napping then, right? It, it just kind of gets like washed away that like, oh, that's what's happening back in the domestic half of the cave. But I would like, I'd love to actually maybe kind of dive into that question more almost as like a separate paper, like where does this story come from? I'll acknowledge, I just read Craig Stanford's New Chimpanzees. So I was thinking when I wrote that question about how the human example is so different. Like this idea that we have assumed these gender, these sex roles, gender roles, even though it flies completely in the face of our non-human primate relatives, doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But to go back to what you were saying about uh, the voices that are out there, do you fear, now that you've written this and are continuing this, that you will be invalidated as scholars because you are women and have written Women the Hunter? Now, obviously, I'm just going to, you know me, and you know I don't think that. But do you or do you fear that? Do you think that it, this would have more of an impact if it were written by a man? Oh, I mean, of course it will or would. But also, you know, that's part of it. Our voices are just as important. And if we don't use those voices, then things will never change. And if I'm not pissing off trolls, I'm not doing my job. I would love the opportunity to be able to engage with, with folks that would be kind of dissenters from this view with an honest, open dialogue of actually coming to the table to have the discussion and not a, you know, shout your woke or whatever, whatever feminist, terrible derogatory term they want to use. But that's rarely ever the case, at least these days, when the vast majority of the engagement is over social media. This is the thing that I often, when I get people who come after me, I, I offer to have like a Zoom call with them if they want to have an honest conversation. And I have yet to actually be taken up on that. I'm sure like coming from a guy, although Honestly, I think if a male wrote it, they would have detractors too, that they would be, you know, falling into the woke ideology as we are called. And we are somehow romanticizing the past using modern day social justice. But currently we've been using modern sexist models that we project onto the past. So I think it's time we flip things on their head a little bit to maybe look at the evidence as it stands without imposing our biases onto that evidence before we do the analysis. And in one of the papers, we kind of made the point about like, this needs to stop being viewed as like a feminist approach or feminist anthropology, and that this is just the mainstream position of the discipline. And it's just good science. If you want to make a claim of sexual division of labor, don't go in saying, oh, we just expect there's sexual division of labor. Let the actual evidence tell you if there is or not. I feel like you guys need not just an impact rating, but like a troll rating as well with every paper. Like how many trolls did you upset? How many people were pissed off by this? Because then like, that's the impact rating I would like to see. It's one of those that unfortunately, like because these articles are American anthropologists, they are behind a paywall. And, you know, that is a deep frustration for, for us. And so we can write like, you know, little things that we can put on our own websites and tweet about them or what is the what is the blue sky one? Bleat, bleat about them. That's the new one for blue sky. <laughs> because I'm a sheep, I bleat. So one of the issues is, is that a lot of these folks will make comments and we actually didn't get that many trolls this time around. Uh, I had a couple that came to the leaky talk that I gave last week and they ended up getting booted out for some of the outrageous comments they were making. Part of what we can mention now is that we have a Scientific American article coming out, drops in stores on October 24th, I believe. It's the November issue, which is the popular version of those two American anthropologist articles. And so 
I would expect us to get a little bit more heat because that one will be much more easy for folks to get a, to get a hold of. So I was bleeded at on your behalf by, I think it was Grandfather Fish writes children's books on evolution. So I think this was actually a serious question because of the paywall issue, which I wasn't thinking about. So I was like, read the article. Why are you asking me? But the question was, what is, is there in the article, he, he said, any actual evidence for women as hunters? Uh, is it a metaphor or do we have evidence that hunting was was practiced by males and females? I think the evidence that women were hunters in the past is as compelling as it is for males, right? There's no, what I was trying to hope that we like were framing our argument as is that there's no evidence that women weren't hunting. So if you're arguing that men are hunting, then women are hunting. Like if we look at the trauma patterns on the body, they're the same between males and females. Her constantly like reconstructed as having to do with close contact hunting with large mammals, but also with like uh, dental wear that's associated with processing leather. It's the same across all sexes of Neanderthals. So there's not like a female role and a male role. They have the same signatures of repetitive use across everybody's body. Everybody's doing the same thing. So if you say that male hunt, then women hunt too. I don't think it's possible to like, you know, find somebody with a spear in their hand mid <laughs> puncture into the side of an animal frozen in a glacier, you know, until we find that great. But I think the evidence is just as compelling for one sex versus any other sex. And we have that recent archaeological site. It's Peru, right? Mm-hmm. In Peru, Sarah, yeah. Uh, where a number of, of burial sites had what they estimate to be female individuals buried with hunting implements, uh, a pretty high percentage of them, which would not be something you typically would bury with somebody unless they were actually utilizing those tools in life. But surely there are some legitimate sex differences in anatomy and physiology that could justify some of these biases, right? So using like chimps as an example, males hunt. And although females may tag along on hunts, the general explanation is that carried babies could become hurt or sexual swellings could be injured or infected. So is it unreasonable to assume the same or similar impediments for human females in ancestral populations? Uh, I think partially because one, we always have to be careful with chimpanzees as a model for our last common ancestor. Chimpanzees have been evolving just the way we have been evolving this entire time. And as I'm very explicit in in the, the physiological evidence article, there are real true on average, biological differences between females and males. Males are bigger and do tend to have more muscle mass, particularly upper body muscle mass than females. But it also seems that females have an endurance advantage. And this is where the things are kind of different from a chimpanzee model. Chimps are not exactly an endurance-based primate the way that our lineage is much more endurance-driven. And through multiple physiological mechanisms that I doubt you want me to get into the weeds too much, but a lot of them relating to estrogen, utilizing fat, more as an energy resource than glucose. Even the ways in which we move our hips, that females move their hips can length effectively lengthen their leg length despite having wide pelvis. All of these things seem to give females an endurance advantage. And something that I'm toying with right now is that the physiological changes that we observe with pregnancy mirror in many ways the physiological changes we see with endurance 
training adaptation. Uh, so we see a lot of cardiovascular changes and a lot of substrate utilization changes that match up between the two. And so there's this really interesting potential that our species had endurance capacity within us because of pregnancy and both females and males benefit from this because a lot of those physiological mechanisms are not sex linked, but it took human bipedalism to unlock that endurance capacity that existed within the female of our species. Uh, and so that's something that I'm toying with and actually will be the AABA presentation for this coming meetings in uh, LA this coming year. So yeah, we can use chimpanzees as a model, but we cannot guarantee that chimpan our, our ancestors had say sexual swellings. And we cannot even throw out the possibility that our ancestors were using various carrying mechanisms among uh, for their children, their offspring along the way. But also there are some real key physiological differences that we see between chimpanzees and humans that make that comparison a bit more apples to oranges. I'd also like add to that about like, well, like the sexual swellings, right? Once you're bipedal, that's probably, you know, goes in hand in hand with the uh, evolution of concealed estrus and probably not having sexual swellings. But even just to think that like sexual swellings are more prone to trauma than descended testicles, I know I'm not necessarily convinced they might be equally uh, prone to injury. But often we get described as like somehow the female body is like, more fragile or more prone to trauma or injury. And that gets- It's the exact opposite. <laughs> males are totally the more fragile of mammalian. Within mammals, males are the fragile ones. <laughs> it is so ironic. And, and it, uh, I always think about how, um, and, and I'm going to brag a little bit because I, I think I modeled this. So uh, one of our, our sort of, we're talking about, woman the hunter but we're also sort of toggling between hunting and sports because there's there are analogous behaviors and one of the things that we 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 typically associate sportiness with maleness as well right or especially like certain things like weightlifting but but Kara is my trainer who I go to for all my weightlifting and I'm proud to say my son who's finally uh getting involved in learning about football hangs out with three girls who are in the uh, the sports science or or journalism program and they teach him everything about football so he's he's learning to enjoy football from sitting with three women who know it better and are explaining everything to him so there's no there's no baseline like certain people are better even if there are some of those those sex differences and they're an overlap like like Kara mentioned so i i think that's that's really cool. And I want to ask about influence in that respect, right? You're both teachers. You both are, I assume, teaching this material to your students. One of you actually gets to work with some of the athletes who are famous. Let's say, like, I, I'm in Alabama, but I don't have some of the more famous athletes in my class who are, who, who themselves have national and international audiences and stages. And I think it's important for us as anthropologists to sort of acknowledge that we're not always the people who get to work with famous people in our classes and stuff like this. Courtney and I were just talking about this a little bit. We now have an anthropology of sports class. We may get some of those. Carrie, you have that. Sarah, you're at a new position, but you have lots of teaching experience. How do students respond to this boundary pushing especially these students who who have like a deep 
probably cultural history with athletics and grew up on very much the model that we're all trying to to destroy. I mean, I don't want to get into to potential FERPA violations, but I've got nine football players and seven baseball players in one class this semester. It is a dynamic, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, although that is the anthropology of obesity class, but we do get into some of these things. And Chris and Sarah at least know me well enough to know that, like, this woman, the hunter stuff is always going to seep out of me, no matter what the technical topic of the class actually is. I think I come to it with a background that makes me a bit more of an authority to these students in particular, like my powerlifting background. You know, one of the first things the athletes will ask me in a class is, all right, well, what were your highest numbers for the big three lifts? And I'm, I, in my prime, I was able to throw up really respectable numbers for my age and my size. And that immediately gets me some level of respect which then carries over when we have the hard discussions about, right, you know, what does testosterone really do when it comes to athletic performance? But like, hey, did you realize that estrogen is kind of a performance enhancing hormone as well? And they're like, what the fuck? I'm like, yeah, guys, <laughs> it is. Let me tell you all the different ways. I would say that so far, with only a handful of exceptions, like everyone has been extremely receptive to it. And their minds are kind of blown because these are things that they have never heard before. They have never been exposed to. And they also will sit and think, especially if we, when we talk about the sociological parts of it, of like their own behavior in gyms and, you know, their own behavior in sports and, and the way they act. And sometimes I know that leaves them feeling a little bit shitty, which is never the goal. It's right. How can we build a better community together? But so far, it's gone really well. And I, I'm going to be teaching the Feminist Human Evolution course, which will be based a lot on this woman, the hunter idea next semester. And just given the demographics of my current student following, you know, there will be several athletes in there. And I'm going to be very curious to see how that one goes. This is only my first semester at a school with a big football program. I'm at the University of Delaware, but I do have some athletes. So I'll report back on how they how they respond though I do have to say I love that Delaware is the blue hens very rarely do we see feminine mascots so I'm glad we're not the blue cocks we're the blue hens <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> so actually going into my next question then so there are a lot of stereotypes and a lot of people do believe that testosterone does all of the work to make people tough and athletic but as you put in the paper, estrogen plays many roles that make women generally perform more efficiently and better, quote, better it, at some physical activities than males. So can you talk a little bit more about what are some of those estrogen functions and how important they are to this story? Yes. Uh, someday when I have time, which is not now, I would just love to write a book on estrogen and then go get trained up in an endocrinology lab as well. So it comes down to a few actually key areas within. And one of the biggest ones is substrate utilization. So anytime you need energy to go and move about, your body is typically either burning carbohydrates or fats. If you are burning protein, you're in a bad, bad way and you need to stop exercising. <laughs> That's going to get you, get you rhabdomyolysis, which you don't want. Um, so Estrogen seems to encourage burning fats rather than carbohydrates. And this is important, particularly in endurance activity. So you get more bang for your uh, buck with fats. You get nine 
calories per gram, whereas carbs, you get four calories per gram. And so you end up getting this long, slow burn with more energy using fat versus using carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are much more your like sprinting and power based things where you need to be really fast for a very short period of time or really strong for a very short period of time. But if you need to keep going on long endurance runs, bikes, swims, persistent hunts, whatever, fat is going to become the primary source of fuel. And estrogen helps increase the amount of fat burn. Uh, so females on average utilize 70% more fat during endurance activity than males do. So that's one of the big ones. This can also help delay fatigue if you're able to rely on this long burning energy source, which females also tend to have more fat than males, which means they have more internal stores they can rely on over long distance. It's going to delay fatigue. And we see this in a lot of empirical studies uh, where females and males are doing the same intensity exercise and males burn out faster, whereas females are able to do more reps of an exercise than males are. So they fatigue much slower. Uh, and then the other big one is that estrogen has a protective effect against damage, cellular damage that can be incurred through the stress of exercise and especially exercise in heat. Um, anytime you're doing some form of exercise, you are, you know, you're tearing your body up and estrogen manages to stabilize cell membranes. So they do not rupture, which means some of the nastier things that can happen during stress, like the production of heat shock proteins and creatine kinases, those do not get released into the broader interstitial fluid that would then damage other cells and other tissues. So females do not incur as much damage. And so they're able to recover much faster than males are. Uh, and it seems both this heat shock uh, protein response and the, the cell membrane stabilization, those are also both estrogen related. And we could go on and on and on about the bigger health effects about estrogen, how it improves, you know, insulin sensitivity, um, and also seems to be related to better cholesterol profiles like higher HDL, lower LDL, things like that. But that's a little less sport and endurance specific. But I want to ask you about your workflow, right? I always want to know about the stuff behind the scenes, right? Like sausage of science, like how does one coordinate putting two massive review papers together and getting them out simultaneously in American anthropologist? And I don't mean like the peer review and how they all helped you, but like in terms of your writing process, what's your workflow like to be productive and, and get something like this done in a timely manner? I'd say like care is really good at like keeping me on task because we also did another paper together before that Neanderthal cold adaptation one and I'd be like oh I'll get to it in the next two weeks and she's like nah how about one week right and that's what I needed because then I would do it and so this next round of papers like I I know her style a lot better that time so I was like all right this is I love working with Kara Kara's gonna get me to finish these papers and we tend to use like google docs so that we can be working kind of simultaneously. But generally we would just text each other like, hey, I just finished going through the draft. Do you want to look at it now? Or putting comments that we respond to each other going back and forth so that it didn't languish for too long while things were fresh. I, I think a big part is we're friends and you know, there's this mutual respect that isn't just about being colleagues, but also being friends. And so I don't think we ever worried about stepping on toes either. There was never this territorial Thing that went on between us it was very collaborative and fun we definitely like leave little uh jokes and 
Easter eggs oh, that for each other in papers as well. Yeah. Our first drafts are so snarky. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just, they are unpublishable given the level of snark in the first drafts. I think we've said this on the show a million times, but I'll reiterate it. Find someone you like to work with and then figure out what to write papers about because it goes a long way toward making sure you're going to enjoy the whole process and want to do it again. Courtney, I love your next question. Why don't you fire away? Well, I was going to say, I know in academia saying like we should research together is like the equivalent of like we should start a band together. So definitely see that happening. And then also find somebody who you're willing to pluck their armpit hair, right? Is that another level of friendship to aim for? Awesome. <laughs> well, yes, of course, kinda... the, the armpit hair plucking is key to any successful academic relationship. Okay, noted. So for any students listening, make sure when you are in a cohort and you're trying to figure out who is going to be your best friend and future collaborator, just look at their armpits and say, am I willing to pluck this? Is this something I'm willing to do? <laughs> well, to pivot back in, and um, I did have another question. So I myself am a female athlete. I'm an avid long distance runner. And I actually continued my intense exercise programs throughout both of my pregnancies. And I feel like I can truly attest to the stigmas that many pregnant endurance athletes face. We're a military family and I was working out on a military base. So it was just a lot of stigmas. But we see individuals like Sophie Power, who is mentioned in your work, breastfeeding while participating in an old marathon. So in your opinion or opinions, what must happen in order to alter society's perception of female endurance athletes, specifically those who are pregnant or choose to breastfeed while participating in these activities? I think I would just say like visibility, right? Like when athletes become pregnant, they shouldn't disappear from the public eye for nine months. Like I myself am pregnant right now and I was off excavating in the field this summer. And so like, I just, they're going to do an article about me at the University of Delaware paper. And I asked them to put a picture of me pregnant in the trench, right? To make it clear, like, you know, we don't put our lives on hold for pregnancy. We continue doing all the same things. And I thought that that would be like a powerful image for archaeologists to see, you know, a pregnant woman in her overalls, maybe a button or two open standing in a trench. Yeah, I think it's becoming normalized, normalized, normalized. And I see this all the time on the various, you know, powerlifting, lifting forums I follow on social media that I saw a nine month pregnant woman squatting 300 pounds. And the comments of the people like, oh my gosh, you're going to kill your baby and, you know, so on and so forth are just so misinformed that if you have a normal healthy pregnancy in which you are not faced with restrictions which those do happen and that is fine there is absolutely no reason that you cannot be exercising to the point at which you feel comfortable and feel safe doing this woman had been squatting for you know well more than 300 pounds well before the pregnancy why shouldn't she be doing it during her pregnancy and this goes back to something that that sarah said that this idea of pregnancy is almost like a diseased or disordered state of extreme fragility and let's just think about that in, you know, the broader mammalian context and an evolutionary context. How many pregnant animals do you see not going out and hunting or not going out and getting the food they need because they're pregnant? How many lactating mammals do you see not going out and getting their sustenance because they're lactating? 
they would die. So why within our evolutionary history should we be different from that? Uh, and, you know, this is something that Sarah and I talk about is that, you know, groups of hominins and humans early on would have been really, really small. People couldn't just take off work, quote unquote, because they were pregnant or lactating. They had to be able to do these activities to survive. Um, and the same could be true for evading predators. You, you need to be able to pick up that kid and go. And so I think normalizing and understanding the broader context that pregnancy is not some fragile disease state is something that we need to keep pushing again and again and again. And that women are more resilient than men. Yeah, I think uh, there's- I'm literally working on that chapter right now for the book. <laughs> we have talked at length, Kara and I, about all of our aches and pains, and it's usually me with more of them. This is awesome. So I want to, uh, for listeners who, who, who have not followed along closely, there are two articles out in American Anthropologist, Woman the Hunter. There is a scientific American article coming out very, very soon this month, uh, about the time this drops. And Kara is working on a book for Princeton University Press, which is due to drop in probably about a year. She's got to turn it in in the spring, I think. I have to turn in the full draft in January. So <laughs> I don't know what happens after that point. And, I'm and hoping I can ignore it for like eight months <laughs> and then they'll come back to me. Sarah and Sarah just started a job at Delaware and is uh, creating a new human. What else you got going on? I don't even know if I want to list it all. Go ahead, Sarah. I was going to say we're working on also another because of the, the conversation about trolls kind of inspired us. So we're doing another kind of piece, kind of directly confronting some of the troll comments that we got that would just be, you know, a public piece because uh, it's fun for us. <laughs> and we've already been texting about another paper to work on. So we certainly keep ourselves busy. I'll in be heading back to Finland in the uh, spring. I was going to so say, in, yeah. in addition to the podcasting and the co-authoring that I know we're doing that has nothing related Nothing to do with this topic, but you guys are involved in many, many, many things. Okay. As you know, the final question is more fun, not fun because the whole interview has been fun, more fun than the rest of it. And you guys are going to bring it because it's obvious to all the listeners that you're neither one of you shy. Sarah's quiet online, but definitely not shy and knows LA well and is fabulous. So when we have our meeting at the Human Biology Association next year, we're going to have a talent show again. What talent are the two of you going to win best show with? Is this just because you're not an HBA member, Sarah, that I'm the one who has to answer this? Sarah's like, I don't have to participate. I'm out. So I don't no, know if I've pull ever... her in for this. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to do a dual show. Like it's going to have to be a duet or something, Sarah. Uh, so I can make some pretty good balloon animals. That is my secret talent. Did you just spit out your coffee? I just about spit kava all over myself because I. Why? Have, <laughs> because I've seen you cook. I've seen you put up Halloween decorations. I've seen you smoke meat. Bring that to HBA. Balloon animals. Balloon animals. All right. That's I fine. mean, you do that's like hominin balloon animals. Well, now like, I'm going to have to. Can we do like request? Like I'm I would like an Australopithecus it. afarensis balloon animal, please. Life size? Yes. I'm just going to put my balloon animal. I'm putting my request in now. So that way you have time to practice. You there have you until go. March. 
I'm going to make a Gigantopithecus. So, so it's just there a you little go. toe, little, a little, <laughs> I'll just slightly up. blow up the balloon, slightly tie blow it up, up and here, hand it to you. There you go. Here's a fossil. <laughs> well, um, when I lived in LA, I had a real big push to pick up new skills every single year. So one year it was roller derby, one year it was pole dancing, one year it was ceramics. So, I mean, I have plenty of skills I could bring to the table. You this last year skateboarding, but then I got pregnant and I was like, that's definitely something I'm going to get shamed for skateboarding on. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> we, we just learned that you can power lift if you're pregnant. And so skateboarding should be fine. As long as I don't fall off the skateboard. Part you of it could be doing ceramics. <laughs> do the ceramics on the skateboard. Just like, oh, do like a boy. hybrid talent. Well, I do make plenty of like little Venus figurines. They're, my entire house is decorated in them. Wait, you have a collection? Yes. This, <laughs> this is in the paper. So let's let's visit this really quickly. So one, what do you call them? And two, tell us about this collection because I find them fascinating also. I think generally in the field, this argument's been made elsewhere that the term Venus is like very much rooted in like colonialist sexist racist descriptions of of south african women let's let's call them like feminine figurines as opposed to trying to make some analogy to i don't know the goddess of love but those figurines i think are so fascinating because historically they were described as like pornography and it was just the assumption that it was a male artist and that the consumer was male and that these were pornographic because they have large sexual secondary characteristics and they're kind of got like anonymous faces uh, but there's many more arguments that have been made for, you know, who these artists were and where they self-portraitures. And I think it's really fun to argue that, like, no, they don't have faces because people didn't have mirrors. And the breasts are large because of parallax when you're looking at yourself and, and in a society that doesn't have mirrors. So your feet look tiny and far away and the shoulders and breasts look much larger. And there's a fun paper from a, I think he's a doctor, right? Not a professor who took all these pictures of pregnant women from themselves at different yeah. angles, looking down um, and seeing like the, sh the shapes that would be produced for the hips and the buttocks and the breasts, and then looking the same angle on these figurines. And it's, it matches up pretty nicely. And I've actually thought that when looking at myself in the mirror in the bathroom, like, you know, I used to argue like, oh, they're probably not pregnant because they all have belly buttons. But then I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, nope, I look exactly like the, the Venus of Lespuge right now, I think that they're pregnant. <laughs> the belly button pops right out, right? Yeah, but not till like, you know, halfway through the third trimester. Right. I'm done. <laughs> it's the, yes. um, so. The turkey timer of yeah. pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for everything. I, I, I would say for being on the show, for being the show, for for being the substrate of the show, for all the things. And Courtney, thank you for jumping in today and co-hosting and we are going to wrap up by saying uh, you can find the sausage of science um, anywhere you get fun podcasts that are hilarious and have Chris and Kara on them. You can find me on, uh, I don't even know what it's called anymore. Chris underscore L Y. I think I'm on threads that way too. I'm not on blue sky yet. What about you people? Are you findable on the socials? I am so findable as Kara Akabak, I think on all of the socials, both whatever the 
thing is now named uh, Blue Sky and Threads. I believe it's Kara Akabak across the board. Yeah, what about you, uh, Homo Seralesiensis? Uh, I'm under Professor Lacey, so oh. I'm still on X and have moved over to Blue Sky. I guess I need to also get on Threads and Mammoth. Uh, but at least I'm on Blue Sky because that seems the direction that the least academic, formerly known as Twitter, is heading. All right, someone sent me one of those. I should do that. Courtney, what about you? Are we finding you anywhere? I just got on X because I thought it was the cool thing, and now I feel like I'm behind. But oh. yes, I'm holy Latoli. Just the old people. <laughs> that is a great name. I get told I'm always told zero critiques. And so yeah, A for effort. I'm holy latoli on X and whatever the other cool new websites are that I need to hop on. Okay, so you guys, uh, listeners, sorry to cut you off. I just want to say, remember this moment. You you heard them before they blew up. And go pick up the, the November issue of Scientific And go American. buy that issue. <laughs> Thank you both. I will probably be texting you in 30 seconds, Kara. And you too, Sarah. And you too, Courtney. Thank you all. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.